Thank you for returning for another time of examining privilege. Please consider heading over to Patreon and showing your support by sharing this podcast or the Patreon page with your friends on social media. You might be surprised just how many folks out there are hungry for the kind of conversation we're having right here. This conversation is with one of my co-conspirators, someone I've been working with in a coaching relationship for over a year now. The book we read together was Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. It was written amidst the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement back in 2013-2014 and was released in 2015, but it has only become more relevant as we approach the mark of having two months straight of demonstrations. A demonstration every day for two months straight is just unprecedented. All to start examining, start a conversation, end the systems of our U.S. white supremacist empire. Our conversation, of course, covers more than just the book as we tackle the promise of what's on the other side of privilege for us as white men. Welcome to episode 10. Let's do our best Patrick Stewart and engage. Yo. Hey, Bill. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you? Pretty fantastical. Um, I have to start by saying thank you, thank you for coming on Killing the Great White Male and for suggesting reading this book. It's been on my shelf for a few years here. Um, it's, uh, I don't know how to say his first name. Uh, Tanahisi? Is that, do you I'd know? I'd say Tanahisi, but I don't know if I'm right either. Okay. Maybe, uh, maybe that's a good topic to start on, the whole uh, going with things without really knowing the truth behind them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and the propensity for us as white men to do that oh, so often. Um, yeah. So and we have the privilege to without really feeling the backlash. Yes. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so Ta-Nehisi's, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, uh, Between the World and Me, uh, was recommended a while ago. Um, but yeah, let's um, let's dive right in right there. Like, um, I think that's one of the big running themes in the book is like the, the razor's edge that that Coates lives on, that he, that he, everyone that he loves lives on of just one wrong slip and I'm dead. Like my body is gone. My body is not mine. It's yours to destroy. And like here we, we can sit and just like, we can butcher somebody's name and no, nobody gives a shit. But, um, if he did that same thing to oh, your last name, right? Uh, Burns is how I, I say it in my head, but I don't know if that's the correct way to say it, you know? Yeah. That's right. Some people say Byron's, Brian's, <laughs> but but yeah, Burns, and it's Irish, which you know he alludes to in the book as well. This this whole kind of white, you know, I I, I guess identify as a white male, but uh, you know I have an Irish lineage as well as I guess some other you know mixture of European countries. But at one point, the Irish were were considered you know quote black in this country. They were the ones. They were one of the the ones that were unwanted. They were these immigrants that were not uh, welcome in this country because they were different. And so uh, I think my actual last name started as Ober and the O and the apostrophe got taken off so as to assimilate better and alleviate the uh, racism and oppression that would come with it. My gosh. Yeah. 
No, that and that's absolutely accurate. The the history behind um, Irish folks being thought of as black, well documented. The same is true as of many other uh, Western European folks um, who came over as as uh, servants or even slaves. Um, and so, yeah, like how how did these rules get constructed? That's one of the things Coates does so well um, uh, is articulating not just the reality that he experienced of this of the 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 result of of whiteness uh um but also the the historical lie that the whole thing is yeah and, and um this lie uh, this lie is something that serves one group of people but doesn't serve the other and uh, and he refers to this as the dream. Uh, and, you know, I, I think this one sentence kind of sums up very well kind of how we kick this off with uh, uh, bodies were broken, people were enslaved, we meant well, we tried our best. Good intention is a hall pass through history, a sleeping pill that ensures the dream. And, yeah, it's this – it's hidden because it needs to to ensure the dream. And this dream is this constructed uh, – this constructed, I guess, quote, reality uh, that's sold in the form of uh, consumerism and that which serves uh, the powers that be. And I'm, we're going to be reading a lot from the book here. And <laughs> part of that is an agenda on my part, because every time I turned around in this book, it was just this, I call it relentless, relentlessly powerful prose, just like words that are so beautiful that it's like my heart feels rent every time I turn around. And in the meantime, he's somehow dropping bombs every time I turn around. Just these, it just, yeah, relentless prose. Um, but on, on that same topic, um, uh, another spot where he, he punches through on that is, but race is not the child of race, but race is the child of racism, not the father. Uh, right away on page seven, he's already talking about race as a social construct. It's a failed scientific notion that's really just based on the, the human brain's bias, like this crap left over from when we were all these disparate little tribes of proto-humans who had to somehow differentiate from each other. Um, uh, so race today is really just a lie. You and I may have more difference in our DNA than I do with, uh, with Torian, uh, uh, my co-host for Where's Your Heart, um, who self-identifies as black. Um, and so like race is a total lie. Um, there's no scientific basis for it. Um, but racism is very, very real. And that's this little quote, but race is the child of racism, not the father. Absolutely accurate. Um, Incredible, incredible stuff. Yeah, and it, um, I mean, it, I guess if we look all the way back biologically, like we're different colors because the melanin in our skin was something, it was a way of our human bodies adjusting to the amount of sunlight that we got and protecting us from uh, burning up in the sun. And so those that had more exposure to more UV rays would turn darker. And uh, it was, I guess, in the days of the uh, English explorers and I guess the European colonialism uh, going to Africa and then over to the Americas uh, and realizing that, okay, if, if capitalism is something that 
that we are ascribing to and that we are, um, you know, that's our dogma, then we're going to need to be able to produce as much using as little as possible. And while the indigenous that are already here in America, well, they can't be used as slaves because they're resourceful. This is their land. They can easily revolt. Uh, and then we have our white servants, which, you know, they can do some work for us. You know, we've established that. But maybe there's something to these darker skinned people from another land that if we bring them to somewhere totally foreign, put them in a culture that's totally foreign, mix them up between tribes so that they don't already have these alliances, well, then maybe we can use them uh, for our own benefit. Yeah, they be- become the machine. Um, right. It's it's something he alludes to constantly um, that it, it's, it's as though black bodies for the this country um, and, and the, the way this country was built to run it's as though black bodies are kind of these interchangeable parts to just be thrown away when they're broken um and that breaking them is just kind of what this system does and must do um it, I, th- I think that's uh, something i have to so the the type of writing he this whole book is a is a letter to his son um it's written in that style that and and so he comes back to that theme constantly of of calling his his son's name forth and saying you know you'll see this with this this that and the other thing and i have hopes for you that are different than than my parents had for me and just this amazing generational notion uh constantly um that really it I guess it was fundamentally different for me. I read a, a book probably about 15 years ago now called Makes Me Want to Holler um, that had a, a similar, kind of a similar, uh, uh, I guess, perspective uh, in some senses, in the sense that it was just written totally and purely honest, honest, uh, honestly um, as a black man in America, what it was like having constant systemic oppression. It was one of the books that I read when I was really just beginning to discover that no whiteness, whether I wanted to be white or not, that whiteness was a thing that, um, that happens. And, uh, it was here, whether I wanted it or not, it was an identity that was projected on me. And, and it helped me begin to understand, um, some of the, the powers at play. Um, so it was a book that was really important to me when I was kind of coming out of my dream, um, coming out of the dream in, in my little bit. Um, and this book has a very different feel, but still with some of the similar perspectives. Yeah. And, um, I, I, yeah, that, that's, I guess talking about bringing, bringing the story as a, as a letter to his son, uh, there's a part in the beginning that I think brings it very current uh where he says if you and you know now if you did not before that the police departments of your country have been endowed with the authority to destroy your body yeah and so talking about this destruction of the body it's uh he he refers to the body a lot as as what they're able to destroy and it's this physical tangible thing and if we think about what a dream is a dream is outside of the body and so it, it, I guess for me, kind of draws this, uh, draws this image of by living in the dream, we live outside of this physical reality. And we live in this dream world where everything's rainbows and unicorns, uh, almost as if that's meant to be a distraction to keep us away from seeing this reality. And as I mentioned, you know, and as like the, uh, I guess, as we see on TV, whether it's 
sitcoms, whether it's the news, you know, it's this narrative, it's a story that's espoused that, uh, that I think we're trying to be kept in to keep us out of our own misery. By keeping us out of our own misery and in the dream, uh, we also don't see the injustices that happen to others. And so the dream is not only, uh, it's not just something that is good that we're living in, it's something that keeps us away from who we really are and who we're meant to be. Yes. Yeah. No, that's huge. It's a, it's as though he, like anytime we bump into the entertainment notion, it's there's a direct line for me between uh, the U.S.'s entertainment industry and the gladiatorial pits of, of Rome, that that type of large-scale uh, entertainment and blood sport, which we have plenty of in this country as well, and once again, it tends to victimize um, people of color at far higher rates. Um and, and literally kill people of color at, at far higher rates. Um, but that, that notion of entertainment as, as being vital to controlling large populations of people, populations of people who, let's, let's get real, we're recording this on Wednesday, July 8th. We are one month into, or one week into the expiration of a whole bunch of moratoriums on evictions and things. Um, we're about to see some of the most terrible homelessness problems in this country um, that we've ever seen. Uh, and and that's not going to be, it, it again, like everything else, is going to be disproportionately borne by people of color. Um, so th- this is not an abstract reality. This is very much a, there are consequences to this dream. There are consequences to being this distracted all the time. Um, and it, it's going to hurt us all. Um. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I guess on that, on that eviction tangent, just if I can say something on yeah, that go. real quick, it's it just, it's baffling to me the amount of not, I mean, the, the amount of storefronts that sit empty when there's local businesses, yep. family owned businesses that have gone out of business because rising rents, yet they're still not able to fill them. I, I just, it it's not no a space problem at all. No, it's not a space problem. You know, there's tons of office buildings that sit open. There's apartments. I I live in Denver, Colorado, and there's condos and apartments being built, you know, every day, uh, most of which are still sitting empty. And and yet we have nowhere to put our humans. Uh, It just it baffles me. And after we've had this camping ban uh, in place for years that got rejected in our last election and the mayor was staunchly against now that there's people camping all over the place. Oh, finally, yes, now we'll, now we'll have a place for people to camp. But no, no one can take any of these uh, empty buildings that we have sitting everywhere. We can't allow people to run businesses and empower themselves there. We'd rather have zero money coming in than uh, what can be afforded. It just, that doesn't make any sense to me. It's this constant capitalism notion that you didn't earn it. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a deep one. <laughs> right. Like it, it, yeah. it this it's this constant relentless focus on you know capitalism needs us to be focused on crime and punishment and needs us to be entertained so we don't wake up to the fact that homelessness is a much bigger issue uh, uh addiction issues are not criminal they're medical uh that medical stuff has to be dealt with that basic medical care is is a human need it's not an option um that pe- people are dying of starvation in in the u.s um how how do we fall asleep so hard that we don't see this stuff well it's very well engineered 
Um, this, I think that's what's so powerful and sickening at the same time of, of Coates, his metaphor of the dream is that it's, I, I'm not sure it's a metaphor. I think it's like, I, I don't, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, it's real. It's, um, you know, yeah, you, addiction, yeah, it's, it's mental mental health, but it's, it's deeper than that. It's also social health. Yes. You know, addiction is, it's it's like the, the rat in the cage metaphor, or the, yeah, the rat in the cage example of, you know, the rat being in a cage alone and getting addicted to the cocaine. But when the rat's in a cage with other rats and toys and yep. gets to go outside, the rat doesn't need the cocaine anymore. Yeah. And so when you have healthy communities, when you have healthy food, when you have support, when you have... Uh, good education, uh, well-paying jobs, access to transportation, all of these things, a lot of the problems solve themselves. Yeah. But if we don't have, uh, I, I guess, the way that things work in this country, everything it's like a seesaw. Everything's two sides of the same coin. And without the ability for someone to be all the way at the bottom of the seesaw, someone else can't be all the way at the top. <laughs> for it to be equal, that person at the top has to come down a little bit. And uh, And I think part of keeping the people at the top without them – feeling bad and their heart jumping in the way and, and stopping them from uh, achieving these enormous gains um, is this dream. You have to have the dream to, because if you wake up, then you see the full reality and you see what's around you. But as people flee to the suburbs, no one really sees the homelessness problem in the city. And so, uh, you know, this quote, the forgetting is habit is yet another necessary oh, yes. component of the dream. Um, I mean, that's so true. That's, he says, um, the segregationist policy that gave them the suburbs, they have forgotten because to remember would tumble them out of the beautiful dream and force them to live down here with us, down here in the world. Yeah. Oh, it, um, yeah. And the, the role of the capitalist notion of like, we have all these little things pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, uh, the, well, they need to earn it notion the well we don't want people taking advantage of the system once again it's a crime to take advantage of the system but it's not a crime somehow for us to have people living in the streets when we have plenty of space to house our entire population like that's the a, a, another quote that follows up on this mountain divide thing is on page 104 the two great uh, uh, he's quoting here um uh, he's Quoting John Calhoun, but he, he mentions it. Anyway, the two great divisions of society are not the rich and the poor, but white and black, said the great South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun. And all the former, the poor as well as the rich, belong to the upper class and are respected and treated as equals. And there it is, says Coates, the right to break the black body as the meaning of their sacred equality. And that right has always given them meaning has always meant that there was someone down in the valley because a mountain is not a mountain if there is nothing below. That right there, that net uh, inequality is necessary for this system to function. Because I mean, this, that's Trump's playbook right there. Right, I mean, that's, yes. How else do you get you know those that are down and out but white you know to feel that they're worth something? It's, you know... It, one way could be to actually, you know, empower them and to fix the systemic issues of poverty, uh, but that would be to change the system that helps those at the top. The other way is to uh, to create those divisions and to make them feel superior to someone else uh, based on these superficial things. Uh, and uh, oh, what, that oh, I was on a line and it escaped me. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Nah, it'll come back. <laughs> That's yeah. the challenge of this stuff. Is it? it, it 
these, this web, because it, it is so multifaceted and so many different lines that bind us in, in this system. Um, I mean, the, so I heard a second quote while, while you were talking in, in my head, it's, yeah. it's the, the bit from page 42. Um, and this, he's in the beginning, he talks about, um, Howard, uh, his time at Howard university, um, a, a historically black college, uh, historically black university. Um, and he's, he ends up calling it the Mecca because it was the first time where, where he got to see variety of, of different folks from the black community and the greatness that was present there, not as an exceptionalism, but just as people. Um, and so he, he writes on page 42, the black world was expanding before me. And I could see now that the world was more than a ph photo negative of that of the people who believe they are white. White America is a syndicate arrayed to protect its exclusive power to dominate and control our bodies. Sometimes this power is direct, lynching, and sometimes it is insidious, redlining. But however it appears, the power of domination and exclusion is central to the belief in being white, and without it, white people would cease to exist for want of reasons. There will surely always be people with straight hair and blue eyes, as there have always been for all history. But some of these straight-haired people with blue eyes have been black, and this points to the great difference between their world and ours. We did not choose our fences. They were imposed upon, on us by Virginia planters obsessed with enslaving as many Americans as possible. They are the ones who came up with a one-drop rule that separated the white from the black, even if that meant that their own blue-eyed sons would live under the lash. And that whole thing refers backward all the way to the to Bacon's Rebellion, when you have poor people, not just poor people, but people who were enslaved in one variety or another, uh, teaming up with indentured ser servants from all these different backgrounds, and and uh, and giving the heave ho to Sir Berkeley, I believe was the guy's name. Um, but it it also refers then to the laws that were put in place that began to make it illegal to marry across racial lines, and then the one drop rule. I had to look that one up. Um, but that one was a series of rules uh, that came about in the early 20th century through in a number of different states that would consider somebody black if they had even one drop of quote unquote black blood in them. Um, and this notion that people were willing to sacrifice their, their own family on that hill to maintain that power, that belief that we have to have inequality. Um, there's. Yeah, well. Well, they were outnumbered. I mean, yeah, the only oh, yeah. way to, yeah, it's, it, there was a huge fear that if if they continue to to carry out what they were doing, that uh, there would be a rebellion of people way more than them. And it was the indigenous, it was the blacks from Africa, it was the white indentured servants, uh, and so they had to draw their own divisions to separate them out. And we sure as hell see that happening now. Uh, in our country as well, that division is necessary for uh, for power to continue. Uh, and at, at, as you were speaking, uh, I remember what I was wanting to say before, and it has to do with the system itself, this system, and taking advantage of the system. It's 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 very interesting to me how that gets thrown out so much, taking advantage of the system without the other side of that same coin, where mm -hmm. the system takes advantage of certain people. Yes, when we look at things like 
redlining. That's a perfect example of the system taking advantage of people, uh, making it harder for people just based on their skin color uh, to get home loans and to live in neighborhoods. And that was when neighborhoods started becoming uh, labeled as dangerous neighborhoods because uh, darker skinned people lived there because they couldn't get loans somewhere else just based on their skin color, even if they had fought for their country, um, yeah. gotten a GI bill. I think it was like 2% of people of color that got GI bills were able to actually use them because they couldn't be admitted into the schools or go to, um, or live in the certain neighborhoods they wanted to get the loans they wanted, even though they fought for their country, risked their lives, uh, fought for this quote freedom, uh, that our country was afforded, uh, yet still weren't able to get the benefits of it. So when a system is stacked against you, how could you not blame someone for trying to take advantage of that same system? Have you ever been discriminated against when looking for a home or apartment? How did it show up? What factors did you notice? Redlining is one of the most insidious tools of racism. Spend some time looking into how it shaped your neighborhood, or maybe a neighborhood you grew up in. It's the kind of experience that is surprising, enlightening, and always painful for me. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you're enjoying this conversation and find some ways to engage your circle of friends on this material. I look forward to seeing you Monday for episode 11.